Tonight, he will teach you his newest, the campaign song for the next president of the United States. Some candidates have their campaign for presidency planned out before they can even vote. For others, like General Eisenhower, it took a little Broadway magic to coax him into the race. Welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Brandy Howell. Today we bring you a special election episode, filled with a closer look into some unknown and perhaps surprising facts about campaign songs and how they have helped shape presidential history. I'm David Haven Blake. I'm the author of Liking Ike, Eisenhower Advertising, and The Rise of Celebrity Politics. A great supporter of Eisenhower's was Irving Berlin, the great American songwriter. Irving Berlin had supported Franklin Roosevelt throughout the Depression and throughout World War II. But there was something in Eisenhower that Berlin was particularly attracted to. He had seen Eisenhower in London in 1944 and seen the way that he interacted with the American soldiers over there. And immediately he came up with this idea, this phrase came to him of, they like Ike. And he sort of tucked that away. And then when he wrote a Broadway musical called Call Me Madam that premiered in October of 1950, he created this song based on that notion of They Like Ike. The musical was about a Washington socialite who becomes the American ambassador to this fictional country called Lichtenberg. The socialite was played by Ethel Merman, and the character's name was Sally Adams. And it follows Sally Adams as she is this female ambassador. But in the middle of this musical, in the second act, Berlin inserted this interesting song called They Like Ike. Now, it had nothing to do with the plot, but it had three congressmen and a senator, two Democrats and a Republican, And the Democrats were singing about how Harry Truman was going to hold the White House for another year. And the Republican would interrupt them and disagree with them. And he'd say, they like Ike. And Ike is good on a mic. They like Ike. And then the Democrats would interrupt. They'd say, well, but Ike doesn't want to run. And he'd say, well, that makes Ike the kind of fella they like, right? That Eisenhower's reluctance to run made him appealing as a candidate. And what's more, they seem to think he's gonna. So this was a very popular song in the musical. Berlin noticed that people really kind of got enthusiastic during the musical when this came on. So when Eisenhower allowed his name to be put into nomination during the New Hampshire primary, it seemed like Eisenhower was gonna be slowly dragged into the race. Washington draft Eisenhower activity accelerates with Senator Lodge's announcement that Ike's in the New Hampshire primaries. Berlin came up from the Bahamas, actually, and rewrote the lyrics to the song. And so from They Like Ike, it became I Like Ike. And from a song about a Republican who was pushing Ike's candidacy, 
now it became voters who were talking about how much they liked Ike. I like Ike, I'll shout it over a mic, the song went. Or a phone, or from the highest steeple. I like Ike, and Ike is easy to like. Stands alone the choice of we the people. The popularity of the song told Eisenhower that there was a great public movement to back him for president. Eisenhower was the supreme commander of NATO at the time. He was stationed in Paris. He was a military man. He had no political leanings, and he did not want to be a presidential candidate. But there were lots of people here in the United States who wanted him to run. And eventually he said, well, it's okay for you to put my name into nomination, but I'm not going to be part of any of it. I'm not coming home for the primaries. I have a job to do in Europe. So when the song became such a big hit, and when he heard that people responded so warmly, both in the theater, because Call Me Madam was still running, it convinced him that there was a great deal of support for his candidacy. His future attorney general would eventually say that the popularity of the song had a big impact on bringing him into the race. We're so used to Broadway musicals as reflecting on past historical circumstances, but this idea that a popular song written by one of America's most genius songwriters could actually help coax somebody into the political arena is really astounding. The song, I Like Ike, with its new lyrics, was premiered at a rally in Madison Square Garden on February 8th, 1952. Madison Square Garden, 15,000 persons stream in for a serenade to Ike, the first big-scale rally in the drive to nominate General Eisenhower. Just listen to this serenade. Ike supporters say he heard the serenade by shortwave radio in France. And because Eisenhower was overseas, and because there were only a sort of small group of people who were engineering this campaign, they had to scramble and get Madison Square Garden at the last minute. Now, Madison Square Garden, in the winter of 1952, they had live boxing matches every Friday night. And so the campaign had to start their rally after the Friday night boxing matches had started. So you can imagine, there's the garden packed with people for boxing. Those fans leave, and then in come all of these Eisenhower supporters for what they called a midnight serenade to Eisenhower. All of this, again, was trying to coax him to come into the race. All these celebrities show up for this evening. Clark Gable appears and he speaks. Mary Martin, who was the star of South Pacific, which was then playing in London. And then the cast of Call Me Madam shows up. The evening's performance ended and the cast gets in a bunch of cabs and they go to Madison Square Garden. Ethel Merman shows up and she sings her signature piece, There's No Business Like Show Business, which Irving Berlin had written. And then Irving Berlin premieres the song of I Like Ike. 
next president of the United States. Mr. Herman Berlin. Now, all of this is happening, mind you, in a boxing ring. And so you've got Irving Berlin with a piano and you've got Ethel Merman dancing around the boxing ring. And the cast of Call Me Madam appear in that boxing ring and lead the crowd in the singing of this new song, I Like Ike. Berlin had made sure to distribute the new lyrics to the press before the night began. So when people woke up on February 9th, 1952, they had the new lyrics to I Like Ike. Really a remarkable evening. Because this was all a serenade to Eisenhower, the true audience for this was the Supreme Commander of NATO who was in Paris. It was all geared towards, again, bringing him into the race. So they took a kinescope of film of this event a very famous woman aviator named Jacqueline Cochran flew this overnight to Paris so that Ike could see it. And Eisenhower's in Paris and in his diary, he writes, you know, I'm not going to deal with this until later. I don't want to see this. He was very skeptical of it. And then he did see it and it brought him to tears. And he records that in his diary, that it was so moving to him. And that's the last thing he records in his diary about the entire campaign is him weeping about seeing the video of that night. Cochrane returned to the United States and continued her active involvement in the Eisenhower campaign efforts. One day, while the committee was brainstorming ideas for the radio and television ads, they came up with an idea that was going to show Democrats murdering little pigs. Cochrane said to the committee chair, I think that's vulgar and in bad taste. We all, well, most of us, eat bacon, but we don't want to see pigs being murdered. We need something that is really appealing, that will appeal to men and women and children. In other words, a Disney. Well, luckily for Eisenhower, Cochrane knew the Disneys very well. In fact, her husband was on the board of the Disney Corporation. She went on to personally meet with Walt Disney and his brother Rory, about doing a campaign spot. She explained that the committee had no money to hire the animators, and the Disney said they couldn't ask their employees to work on a project that directly supported a candidate for office, but they could ask for volunteers, which is ultimately what happened. And there was one volunteer, not an animator, but a nurse for the Disney Corporation, that wrote this now famous jingle. Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president, you like Ike, I like Ike. The 1952 ad, I like Ike, that was an ad that was produced for free by Disney. There were about 59 employees working on it. If they had charged for it, it would have cost around $25,000, which was a huge amount of money at that time. I'm Paul Christensen. I'm an associate professor of music at Seton Hall University. I recently published a book called Orchestrating Public Opinion, How Music Persuades in Television Political Ads for U.S. Presidential Campaigns, 1952 to 2016. Eisenhower's campaign had a very close relationship very early on with a lot of Madison Avenue ad execs. And so they were involved from the beginning of the campaign and they 
contributed to making a slicker campaign than Adlai Stevenson had, certainly. The 1952 ad, I Like Ike, it's done as an animated cartoon. And there are a number of different characters who are kind of running in a parade. That's for Eisenhower. From the dress of the different characters, you can see that they're from different professions. Like there might be a banker, a stockbroker, a plumber, and they're all marching to the right of the screen. And then you see the Adlai Stevenson character riding a donkey, you know, the symbol of the Democratic Party, riding to the left of the screen. So it's like uh, everyone's marching to the right and then he's off and marching to the left. The song is a very jaunty melody. It starts with this bass that goes, Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president, I for president. And then the melody comes in, you like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. It's kind of like an earworm that kind of gets in there. You know, you watch the ad a couple of times and then suddenly you're singing it to yourself, which is how a lot of these jingles work. Now is the time for all good Americans to come to the aid of their country. It's very much a piece of regular product commercials that were done at the time. For instance, the Pepsodent ad from the 1950s. You'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. Pepsodent. That jingle was a very popular one at the time, and it's very much of a piece with this I Like Ike. In other words, the ad was fitting right in with the flow of television at the time or various ads, it wouldn't particularly necessarily stand out as a political ad from the other ads that were going on at the time. It was in 1952 that the people around Eisenhower started producing these television commercials. If you look back at these spots, they were called Eisenhower Answers America. They were very, very awkward. Eisenhower Answers America. They say we've never had it so good. Yet I've had to stop buying eggs. They're so expensive. No wonder. You actually pay 100 different taxes on just one egg. We must cut costs, which means we must cut taxes. But at the same time, this was revolutionary. The idea that a presidential candidate would be on air and you'd be trying to sell him as you might toothpaste or breakfast cereal was absolutely radical and revolutionary to people across the political world and to the advertising industry itself. The Democrats hated this, and they continually complained about the commodification of political candidates. They called Eisenhower's campaign a cornflakes campaign because people thought we're reducing what should be a competition of ideas we're reducing it to a competition of marketing and advertising. But obviously we know who won in that way, and we know where the historical change happened. The Democrats' candidate was Adlai Stevenson, and Stevenson did not own a television, and he was very uncomfortable appearing on TV. And one of the reasons he lost so dramatically was he was terrible on television. So the Democrats were buying up 30-minute spots for Stevenson to give a speech. This is Adley Stevenson. I've tried as best I could to discuss the real issues facing you and me and all the American people in the four years to come. The time for decision is now at hand, on Tuesday, November 4th. 
you and I will vote to help decide who should be president for all our sake. And Eisenhower had all of these people who were selling things like Rolades and very popular products, and they were putting him on in short 30 second or up to a five minute slot. And these were so much more effective. I like Ike? Absolutely. But click with Dick? Mm, maybe not. Richard Nixon's 1960 campaign presented him as stiff and awkward compared to the youthful charm and confidence of Kennedy's candidacy. But by the end of the decade, when he began his second bid for presidency, Nixon was more in touch with the younger generation, especially when it came to his music. It seems to me that actually Nixon almost comes off as younger in the 1972 campaign as an incumbent president who's relaxed and comfortable with himself, knowing who he is, than he did as the very insecure vice president under Eisenhower. He just seemed really nervous at that time and insecure. A reporter who had asked Eisenhower, can you name some major policy or some major effect that Vice President Nixon has had? And Eisenhower responded with, well, if you give me a week, I can think of one, which is a pretty damning you know, indictment of your own vice president. This is Sherry Burke. I was married to Vic Caesar in 1968 when he wrote Nixon's The One campaign song. It was an interesting time. I met Vic Caesar in the Bahamas in 1964. He was a musician that played on stage. He was playing piano, and I worked at the hotel. We got along very well, and we went off the island and traveled all over, and he played all over the United States. Played piano, he had a band. We went to Vegas. He worked at Caesar's Palace, one of the first bands to work at Caesar's Palace. <laughs> and Los Angeles, he played in the Playboy Club. In 67, he got a partner who wanted to open a club with him that would serve good food and have great music. And we brought Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Billy Eckstein. I just, it was the most exciting year. Vic was friends with Richard Kleindienst, who was a supporter of Barry Goldwater and later became Richard Nixon's attorney general. He asked Victor if he would write some music for the Trunk and Tusk Dinner, an annual Arizona Republican fundraising dinner, which was honoring Richard Nixon. I think he talked to him at the club about it. And so Victor came and told me about it. Well, I thought that'd be interesting, a fun thing for Victor to do. <laughs> I was not a big fan of Nixon. But uh, you get opportunities if you're a musician, especially you do what you're asked. And he was a very good entertainer, and he was glad to do it. He was a lifelong Democrat. He had played for Bobby Kennedy when he was campaigning earlier in that year, actually. But it didn't matter. It wasn't as partisan as it is today. Republicans, Democrats weren't all that different. 
Even though Vic was a Democrat, he did feel honored to be asked for this song for a, a candidate. It made no difference. It was still a wonderful experience. The night before the fundraiser, he came home from work. He'd done two shows at the club. He was tired. He wanted a few minutes with his little baby, playtime, and then he was going to go to bed. And I said, no. Did you write that song yet? You have to write that song. You promised it's tomorrow. And so he said, yeah, yeah, okay. And I put the baby to bed, and he's still hemming and hawing. But I reminded him again, it was tomorrow. So he did. He worked on it all night. I was invited to go with Victor to the fundraiser, which I thought would be interesting. I don't get out much then with the new baby and all, and I dressed up. It was all these rich Republican people and me. It was a fundraiser for Barry Goldwater. Nixon was not even nominated yet, and so he was just, you know, hoping. (laughs) And the first guy that came out and sang, which was another singer, sang The Impossible Dream. And I kept sitting there thinking, boy, that's the wrong song to sing. (laughs) And I think he realized it at the end, the guy. The mood in the crowd was very questioning. What is this guy singing about? (laughs) And then it was Victor's turn. They weren't listening very much. They were talking. And so he started his song that he wrote for Nixon. And it was very simple, only a few words kind of a repeating song like campaign songs are and um, pretty soon the audience got real quiet and they were listening Uh, and Nixon was listening I was watching Mr. Nixon I was curious how he was going to be affected and uh, the crowd started to sing the words which was Nixon's the one Nixon's the only one they were really getting into it and it went on and on and I could see Nixon's face just begin to change and look around like, wow, oh, I could do this. I swear I saw it on his face. And then he got up and he walked on the stage and went and talked to Victor and the other musicians. He said something that he played the piano too, and Victor said he could have a job with him if the things didn't work out for him, <laughs> which he laughed at. <laughs> I was very impressed with the warmth that he showed Victor on the stage. Victor was so high. He was so excited. It was such a wonderful connection. Whoever Nixon was, you know, Mr. Nixon. the best part of Nixon was showing that night. I really enjoyed seeing that part of him. It became very real to me. Mr. Nixon is appearing in the doorway now, preceded by members of his staff and members of the Secret Service. I, as you probably have heard, have received a very gracious message from the Vice President congratulating me for winning the election. I have also had a telephone conversation with him. I congratulated him for his gallant and courageous fight. I also told him that as he finished this campaign that I know exactly how he felt. I know how it feels to lose a close one. <laughs> Nixon won, and Victor was 
very excited about that because he had written the song. And he was playing in Los Angeles at the Playboy Club at that time. And he got word that somebody was looking for Vic Caesar on television. Ed McMahon on The Tonight Show was looking for him. And so he got a number and he called and he was invited to the inauguration to play, which came as a big surprise, but he was really pleasantly surprised. And he went and his whole band played. Uh, I stayed home with the baby and he had an incredible time. He was the purple suited singer from Las Vegas. That's what the newspaper said. And he did wear a purple suit. <laughs> with a Nehru collar, which Nixon also wore. I don't believe Victor voted for Nixon. I didn't. <laughs> but I was happy for Victor. He had an incredible time. I'm Bob Gardner. My career has been in advertising, but I've also been doing political ads for a long, long time and have had some really interesting clients. The first one was being part of the ad team for President Ford against Jimmy Carter. And I am the composer and a lyricist for the campaign song for Gerald Ford, which was called I'm Feeling Good About America. There's a change that's come over America, a change that's great to see. We're living here in peace again, we're going back to work again, it's better than it used to be. My first job in the political world was as a speechwriter during the Nixon years. My first boss was Don Rumsfeld. This was the wage and price controls in the Nixon administration. I was working at an ad agency in New York, and I had a friend who had left that agency to be a White House fellow, and he called me one day and he said, the guy I'm working for needs a speechwriter. And I said, well, I've never written a speech. He said, well, you can write, you're an ad guy, and you also know something about economics. So come down and interview. And I did, and I moved there quickly. It was very fast moving, and as you can imagine, trying to put wage and price controls on the U.S. economy was quite a task. So I and my colleagues were working 14, 16, 18 hours a day. And it was very exciting because I'd never been in Washington and you know, I was all of a sudden in the middle of the hottest bureaucracy in D.C. Prosperity without war requires action on three fronts. We must create more and better jobs. We must stop the rise in the cost of living. We must protect the dollar from the attacks of international money. I had left my speechwriting job and I'd returned to San Francisco back in advertising. And Ford's first chief of staff, was Don Rumsfeld. And the second in command, his deputy, was Dick Cheney. And Dick had worked also in the Cost of Living Council, the wage and price controls. So I knew him well. And by the time the campaign had rolled around, Rumsfeld was then Secretary of Defense for the first time. And Cheney was Chief of Staff. He was the youngest Chief of Staff ever. And he was the one that gave me a call and said, we've had terrible advertising in the primaries. We will squeak through the convention. We will beat Reagan, and we will be the nominee. And when that happens, I want you to come back and be part of the ad team. 20 votes for Gerald R. Ford. 
I am honored by your nomination, and I accept it. Dick Cheney calls and said, you've got to come back to D.C. and be part of the ad team. So I did. I quit my job and went to Washington right after Labor Day. We were 35 to 50 points behind Carter at the time, and nobody thought we could possibly catch up. So in a way, that was a blessing because the higher-ups of the campaign let the ad team alone because they figured, you know, we needed a lot of Hail Marys, so what the hell? This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. President Ford took his election campaign out of Washington today. He departed from his stay-at-home and be presidential strategy for a speech to his alma mater. I've written a bunch of jingles in my career, but I'm really not a songwriter. So I looked at the strategy, which was essentially that things were looking up. Recession was over. The war in Vietnam was over. So just... Out of the blue, I took the strategy and wrote the song, I'm Feeling Good About America. Well, I do lyrics first, so I did that. And again, they were designed to reflect the strategy of the campaign. And then, you know, it's just serendipitous. I mean, I just sat down at the piano and the melody kind of flowed out pretty quickly. Usually with me, they come quickly or not at all. So this process, frankly, didn't take all that long. It wasn't like I labored over this for days and days and had sleepless nights or anything like that. I just did it. I would sit down at the piano and noodle it out and do it on a little recorder. And then I'd send it off to a jingle house, a music production company. And, you know, a week later, you would have the best studio musicians and the best studio singers in either New York or Los Angeles doing your work. And that was a huge thrill to, to go from me barely playing it correctly on the piano to having a top team doing your song. That was a huge uh, ego boost. The music company in New York that I'd been using forever, it doesn't exist anymore. It was called Mega Music, and it was owned by a friend of mine who had left the same ad agency I was working for to join this other guy, Don Daneman, a rock musician. He was a member of a band called The Circle. They had a big hit in Red Rubber Ball, and they opened for The Beatles because Brian Epstein was their manager as well as the Beatles manager. So he set up a music company in New York for jingles. They had a studio in their house at Brownstone in New York, which was well-equipped. They did a full-score demo with it, and that's what I took to the campaign because I wasn't certainly going to take my singing and playing on the piano. I never would have gone very far. But all of a sudden, when it was orchestrated correctly, they could hear the potential. I took the demo to the campaign higher-ups and they glommed on to it immediately. It went right up the hierarchy and was approved right away and said, let's, let's start to do this. And so it actually became 
the centerpiece of all the TV and radio advertising for the campaign. Today, America enjoys the most precious gift of all. We are at peace. We're at peace with the world and at peace with ourselves. America is smiling again. And we did it in a number of different versions. We did what I would call sort of a 70s rock version. We did a slow folk version. We did a rock and roll version, a soul version, and two or three Hispanic versions. And I didn't realize at the time that the Cuban version was a lot different from the Mexican version in the Southwest. They really didn't see eye to eye very much. So we had to do two different musical versions, even though they were in Spanish. The sound of the song, especially in the original version, was what was going down at the time musically. I mean, I wanted it certainly to be contemporary. I didn't want it to sound like 50s or 60s rock or something along those lines. So the beat was uh, slow, quick, quick, like most every rock song was at the time. There was also a marching band version, which ended up having about a 60-piece band in it. Gerald Ford, he loved it. I've got a number of notes from him about the song and pictures where he actually signed the original sheet music. Betty Ford loved it. He introduced me to Betty one day and says, this is the guy that wrote that great campaign song. So yeah, it was really part of everything. In the last couple of campaigns, certainly 2016 and 2020, most of the music is just this stock music, sometimes even pretty nondescript, not clearly positive or not clearly negative music that's just written by these clearinghouses. Jingles in general in advertising are kind of out. I think the change came about because of the rise of professional political consultants. In presidential ad races, for a long time, a Madison Avenue agency would be hired to do the ads. And then the political consultants started to take over. They started by doing local races and congressional races. And as those people rose up, they kept them going all the way up to presidential. Their philosophy was much more go for the throat, go negative immediately. The political people call us, quote, Madison Avenue, which is not a term of endearment. We no longer are much of a factor. I was on the ad team for Bush 41 against Clinton. And there was a group of Madison Avenue people, more so than political people, who were controlling that. But to my knowledge, that's really the last time that it has happened. So the political consultants you know, won that race. I've continued to do political work, but there's never been music involved other than scoring. So, you know, that era, as I said, is over. I hope it will come back. Music is used in political ads to try to subvert a rational process of evaluating candidates and policies and to instead make emotional appeals that will tug on your heartstrings and make you ignore maybe voices in your head that are saying, I'm not sure this is the right policy or this is the right candidate, but that ad made me feel good. Why aren't political ads just with the talking head of the candidate saying, these are the policies I support, this is my record, I voted this way and this way, why don't we have our political discourse in that way and in a perfectly rational way? 
you know, why do we have music in political ads? I think it's a good question to ask. But there's so much money that goes into political ads. So apparently campaigns think that ads can be very, very effective. So to what extent does music contribute to that? Special thanks to David Haven Blake, Sherry Burke and Juliet Caesar, Paul Christensen, and Bob Gardner. And to the archivists at the Eisenhower, Nixon, and Ford Presidential Libraries for their hard work and dedication to preserving this material. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please consider sharing with a friend and subscribing wherever you find your podcast. And of course, without saying, please go out and vote this week. Till then, you've been listening to The Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Brandy Howell. Thanks for tuning in.